Right. So what we're going to go over first is something I mentioned we would last week, which is practically what do you need to do? What do you need to know to renew your mind in the area of overcoming past memories of past specifically? So whether it's the old life, old sins, or even present habits that maybe started in the past, how do you renew your mind so that you're not continue, continuing in those things and then not holding on to any guilt or shame that really shouldn't be there? What do you do about it? What do you need to, to understand or to overcome in that area? So the first thing we're going to do, there's three points for this. We're going to go over each one of these, and it has to do with certain scriptural truths that are essential to renewing your mind in this area. So the first we're going to look at is Psalms 119, verse 9. This scripture is actually the first one. I, I remember the day when I was facing some old sin in my life that um, had continued as a habit. And it, this was about the same time when I really turned my life around and started obeying God. And I remember frantically searching through the Bible, looking for something that was going to be a starting point for me about the answer. I wanted to know the solution. And this was the first scripture that I landed on that started me on the right track. So I figured we'd use it today. So Psalms 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. So first thing that's required is God's word. Number one. Second thing is to take heed according to it. So what that means, take heed is basically a term that means pay attention. Consider what you're going to do. Be careful about the decision you're going to make. And make sure it's based on scripture. That's what that verse is trying to say. So the first thing you got to have is the word of God. What does the word of God say? And that gets into examples like in Joshua 1 verse 8, which we've gone over commonly, which says that if you meditate on the word day and night and don't let it depart from your mouth, then you will prosper and have good success. So meditating on the word day and night is the goal. Second scripture we're going to look at is Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Galatians chapter 5 in verse 16. It says, I say then, walk in the Spirit... And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now we'll just pause there for a moment. It reads so simply, which is that if you're walking in the spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Oh, easy. It seems like it's easy anyway. And this was the second scripture I looked at at this time in my life. And I went, okay, Lord, so obviously the answer according to the Bible is to walk in the spirit. And Psalms 119 says you have to take heed according to the word. So you need the word. So I was, I'm reading the word. Landed on Galatians 5.16, got to walk in the Spirit. How do you do that? I'm going to start by posing it as a question. Who would like to answer what it means to walk in the Spirit? Dying to self. Yeah, dying to self. Walk in obedience. Yep. What else? Abiding. Abiding in Christ. Yep. Maybe a little bit more practically. Those are all true. Yep, obey the word, obey the word, praying continuously, yeah, be a listener and do it, yeah, listen, listen and obey, yep, all these things are true, I would say it starts, because in order to walk in obedience, you have to know what it is that we're called to obey, number one, what does God actually ask of us, number two, there's a certain sense in which Brian mentioned it, there's this abiding there's a dwelling in, meditating on that needs to be there first to know and then be able to have your mind in the position where you're able to walk in obedience. Next verse is Romans chapter 8, verse 5. We get that, that one up on the screen. That would be great. Romans 8, verse 5 gives us a hint as to what this actually looks like. Romans 8, verse 5. It says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So you've got Galatians 5 saying, if you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Romans says that people who live according to the flesh or the Spirit do so on the basis of what they're thinking about. So before you can walk in obedience, it starts with what you're thinking about. 
So yes, walking in the Spirit, according to Galatians 5, if you look at it in context, is the fruit of the Spirit. So if you're walking in love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, so on and so forth, you would be walking in the Spirit. But in order to walk in those things, it begins with your mind. It starts with what you're thinking about. So go back to Psalms 119. How do you cleanse your way? Purify your life. It begins with what you think about. It means take heed, consider, meditate on the word of God. When you're thinking about the word of God, that puts your mind in a certain state of meditation on his word, which allows you to then walk in the fruit of the spirit. So it starts with what you're thinking about. So the question that comes up, practically speaking, is, well, how much do you got to read the word? We've gone over this before, at least briefly. The goal is to meditate on it day and night. And it's different for everyone, but you essentially should take time out of your day to study the word for the amount of time that's needed for you to think about it the rest of the day, which means at any dull moment, any break in your time, if you're, let's say, not mentally transfixed on your work or whatever it is that you're doing, you have a dull moment. What does your mind drift to? So if whenever you have those dull moments, your mind drifts to scripture, that would be that meditation and that's the goal. So read enough, give your mind enough to chew on that when you have those moments, that's what your thinking goes to. That's the goal. For some people, it's more. For some people, it's less. For me, and some of you might find this to be the case in your life, and I'm going to say this as a disclaimer that not everyone needs to do it this way, but for some people, it just turns out this way. For me, with the particular habits that I was overcoming in my life, I, I had to read the Word for several hours a day in order to be able to think about it the rest of the day. For some people, it doesn't have to be several hours. It just depends on however much you read to get to that goal. So you have to start, okay, how long do I need? And stick with that until you can reduce the time, but keep your meditation in the right place. That's the goal. And you're going to have to be disciplined about this because it's a decision, but you're going to have to know yourself well enough to know how much you have to meditate on the word. Now, when it comes to the past specifically, it's really good to read scriptures about being free from sin and or your identity in Christ. So Ron went over a, a few in, in the recap, but Romans 6 is phenomenal for this. So when it comes to your past, overcoming sin, knowing who you are in terms of freedom from sin, Romans 6 is written for that purpose, to show you that you've died to sin and that you're free from sin. So that's a really important thing to think about. A couple other recommendations other than Romans 6. These were really foundational for me. Ephesians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 3. Ephesians 4 talks about being a new creation and how that you've put off the old man and your new man's created according to God. Colossians 3 says, your, says to set your mind on things above because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's verses 2 and 3 of Colossians 3 that talks about that. So if you stick with, to start, if we're talking about the topic of sin and your past, if you stick with to start Romans 6, Ephesians 4, and Colossians 3, really, really foundational chapters for this topic. So those would be some recommendations as far as specific scriptures. Second practical thing. So summarize what we've already gone over. Renewing your mind begins with taking that time out of your day where you read. The purpose of that reading is to meditate on the word, which allows you to walk in the spirit. Because when you're walking in the spirit, you won't be walking according to the flesh. Second thing is, let's say you've done that reading in the morning. You have moments throughout the day where those invasive thoughts just kind of come in out of nowhere. What do you do with those? This is the next thing that a lot of people have, have an issue with. Overall, I can tell you that the more time you spend overall throughout your day meditating on the word, it will help with those invasive thoughts. So if you make progress in the area of taking that time to read every day, you will grow and those invasive thoughts will come less frequently. But in the meantime, while they're still coming, what do you do practically? 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 through 5 talks about this. So let's go there next. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 4 through 5. It says, uh, let's actually start verse 3. Verse 3 gives us a little bit of context. It says, For... 
though we walk in the flesh, which means we walk in a physical life with a physical body, we do not war according to the flesh. In other words, you're not going to help your thoughts by just smashing your head against a wall. For the weapons of our warfare, in other words, what we use to fight, those weapons are not carnal. They're not physical, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Strongholds, think about this mentally. Think about this, even scientifically speaking, when you spend any amount of time thinking a certain way or practicing a certain thing, your mind actually builds this neurological network, right? This webbing almost. And your brain has something called neuroplasticity, which means that it can be changed. Your brain is one of the few organs in your body that with your thoughts, you can build and rebuild over and over and over again. It takes time, but it's meant to be malleable like that. A stronghold in terms of your thinking means basically a pattern habit, thinking habit that is set up, that's been there for a while, that has to be pulled down. And that takes time. Casting down arguments. This would be any information, memory, experience, knowledge that argues or fights against what the Bible says is the truth. And all of us have thoughts like this sometimes. And then every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. A high thing, sometimes, this is like stepping it up a notch. This can be something that is either spiritual. For some people, it might be an actual demonic resistance, especially if for unbelievers. But for most of us, a high thing essentially means some form of, take it this way, some form of belief or piece of information that we have set up as it's impossible for this to change. It's almost like it's, it's too high, too far beyond what we think is able to actually be overcome. And so that kind of stays and we're like, man, I'm, I'm just, I'm never going to overcome that. And so we set it up and we do that to ourselves, right? So he's saying, but those things are exalted against the knowledge of God. So when you take something and say, this can't be overcome, you're, you're setting it against the knowledge of God and saying it's exalted higher than God's word, which isn't true. God's word is always exalted higher. So you have to take those things down and say, okay, there's nothing that's impossible for God to overcome, right? There's nothing that the word of God can't cleanse away. So that's strongholds, arguments, and high things. They're exalted against the knowledge of God. And it says this practical step we have to take is bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And then he says, we won't get into this in extreme detail right now, being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So we'll start in verse five, uh, bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Bringing a thought into captivity is basically like, to give you a word picture, when there's a fly or a mosquito flying around your head and getting in your ears and really, really annoying you, you you don't let it keep doing it. You either swat it or get it away. You're, when you trap a mosquito, you're taking it captive, right? You're, you're stopping it from continuing to do what it's doing. Thoughts are the same way. They fly around. And if you just let them keep running rampant without doing anything about it, it's going to keep happening. That's the point. So taking a thought captive basically means acknowledging, okay, this thought is there. What is it telling me? Is it true? Is it false? And if you know that it's false, taking it captive and then bringing it, it says, to the obedience of Christ means replacing it with a thought that would be submitted to the knowledge of God or submitted to the truth. So this takes some discipline. It takes some practice, but it essentially means when those thoughts come, you have to be equipped with some kind of truth, some kind of scripture that you can replace that thought with. So for some people, it might be, basically speaking, dwelling on this guilt and still identifying yourself as a sinner. You could take Romans 6. It says, no, I'm dead to sin. I'm free from sin. You, you give your mind that truth to think about so that you can go to that more easily instead of just dwelling on the negative. 
This is why meditating on the word is so important. You have to give yourself, you have to give your mind an arsenal of scripture to think about. Otherwise, the mosquito is just going to keep flying. That's the point. That's why you have to renew your mind. You have to have scripture. Otherwise, it's like taking something captive and then not doing anything with it. Eventually, it will just escape and it'll keep happening. Take it captive, turn it into obedience. Another thing that's practical in terms of action, because obedience always includes action besides your thoughts, is that if some negative thought comes, see how you can turn that thought into something that actually causes you to take an action of obedience that you otherwise would not have taken. So an example will be, I heard this from a, a preacher I used to listen to a while back a few years ago. He would say, for example, in terms of lustful thoughts, he would say like, for example, if he was driving and, you know, he, he looked at a woman and he knew that he was thinking wrongly about this person, he said, he would say, okay, I know that's a thought that needs to be taken captive. And then he said he would actually let it cause him to pray for that woman instead. So he would turn the thought into an action that was godly, even though it started as a sin, Right. And he said sometimes in extreme cases, he would actually roll down his window and like shout Jesus loves you or, or something like that at this person, you know. But he said most of the time it would just be a matter of prayer. So that's a simple action you can take. A thought comes, turn it into prayer. How can you pray for yourself about this or how can you pray for another person if said thought has to do with another person? Turn it into prayer. Another thing is if it has to do with a negative thought about a person in terms of, let's say, if it's bitterness or unforgiveness or you're holding some kind of animosity against a person you want to overcome, you want to actually walk in forgiveness. Something that you can do is actually, and Jesus said to do this, get in contact with that person, bless them in some way. Pursue reconciliation with that person. Do something that will bring reconciliation into that relationship. Take some kind of action. Those are just two examples. But it really boils down to when those invasive thoughts come, step one, don't let them keep flying around. Replace it with scripture. Number two, take an action that will turn what began as sin into an act of obedience. Whether that's in your thoughts or, or in an actual action for that person. This is connected to the armor of God, so we're not going to get into this in extreme detail right now, but Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17 talks about this, the armor of God. It says that the armor of God allows you to stand against the wiles of the devil. The wiles of the devil basically means the lies, deceits, and trickery of the enemy. Lies and deceits are the number one thing that we face. If you're a believer and you are born again, you're a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit then that means the worst that the devil can do is try to lie to you to get you to believe something that's wrong. You can be, as a believer, you can be misled or you can be deceived or led astray. That's the worst the devil can do, can do to you, but he can only really do that if you don't have the truth that you're meditating on. That's why you need the word. And the armor of God, the Bible says, is what equips you to be able to stand against those wiles. So like I said, we won't get into it in detail, but I would encourage you to read through that. And just look at what it says you have to be equipped with. And if you just go down the list, it says belt of truth. Got to have Jesus in place because he is the truth. You have to know Christ. Uh, what, I'll just, I'll read through it real fast, but um, I want to talk about details. So you've got the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness. Walking in righteousness is key. In other words, you have to have a intention, a decision in your life to walk in righteousness. That's your breastplate. Your feet sharp with the preparation of the gospel of peace, meaning always be prepared to share the gospel. In other words, if you are equipping and educating yourself to know what you believe and know how to share it with another person, you're going to be equipped with a lot of information that will help both you and other people. You will find that if you live an outreach-focused life, in other words, you, you have set your course to reach other people, you're going to be thinking and studying the Word a lot more than you otherwise would have because now you have people who are in need in front of you that you've made a decision to help minister to, and that puts you in the position where you have to educate yourself more. That's why people say the teacher learns more than the student because as soon as you start needing to teach other people, you teach yourself, 
which is why Ron's been saying just doing these recaps has caused him to study a whole lot more, just taking a few minutes at the beginning of teaching time to share. Because when you have something to say to other people, it makes you dig in more. And that's the point. So always be prepared to share the gospel. That's actually a protective mechanism against the devil. Shield of faith. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. So you obviously have to know what the word of God says to put faith in it. Then you've got the helmet of salvation. You have to have confidence in your right standing with God and confident that you're saved. If you're going to have a helmet. Sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That strikes down. You use the word against lies to remove them. And then it says stay in prayer. Pray always. You guys can study that more in your own time. I would definitely encourage that. Kind of a, a side note for the second point about what you can do for your mind. Praying for yourself, period, is a really, really good thing to do. So when it comes to your thoughts, if you just simply look, pray and just say, Lord, help my thoughts to be pure. Help me to have a sound mind. Help me to not have a spirit of fear. Just think about scriptures that have to do with your thinking and pray those scriptures over yourself. Pray for yourself. Pray for your mind. Third thing, if there is a particular sinful habit, something that's an action that's continuing in your life that engages your thinking negatively, building self-control is needed. So for some people, they're usually pretty good at not thinking about certain things too much, but a habit is still there, and that particular habit engages their thinking because obviously you're going to be thinking about certain things when you're uh, involved in negative habits. So that means an actual change of action, a repentance is needed. And repentance in any particular area really, at, if you boil it down, comes from self-control. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. If you have self-control, this means you can stop yourself at any time from doing something you know that you shouldn't do. We all need more self-control. Amen? Now, how do you build self-control? One of the words that's used to replace the Greek word for self-control is temperance. And temperance is used in 1 Corinthians 9, and it says that somebody who is temperate is also somebody who disciplines their body. So, disciplining your physical body, we've talked about this before, through exercise, but also specifically fasting builds self-control. So if you want to break a certain habit, fasting helps with that. Practically speaking, something you don't want to continue in, fast. While you're fasting, this is from, from food, pray to have self-control in the area you're focusing on. That's the combination of prayer and fasting. Do those two things. That helps build self-control into your life, and that will help you with those particular habits. So to sum up everything we've gone over, take time out of every day to renew your mind. Give your mind scripture to draw upon throughout your day. That's the first point. The second is take thoughts captive, replace them with scripture. This is specific invasive thoughts. Replace them with scripture and turn them into an act of obedience. Pray for yourself, too. And the third thing is when it comes to certain sinful habits or negative habits and thinking, build self-control through fasting, and while you fast, pray for self-control in the area you need it in. Okay. I'm going to pause there for a moment because that's the first part, and then the next part gets into some more details. Does anyone have any questions or comments about any of this so far? All right. I have a question, too. Yes. So the fiery darts, the ways that the enemy comes against us, I just have some questions about that in the scripture that came to mind. I don't know the reference, but where it says, we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. All of that, how much credit or credence uh, do we give to that? Or do we view it like, I don't know if you did that purposely, but the mosquito analogy, do we view it like as lame as a mosquito? Or do we give it more, give the enemy more credit? I guess that's my question. Gotcha. Like how much, it's kind of like the, 
And what are they called? The devil behind every doorknob? What is that saying? Well, that would be the other extreme. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. One extreme is everything is a demon and way, way, way overemphasize it versus not imagining anything as demonic at all would be the other extreme. So where's the balance? Is that kind of your question? Yeah, and what, what elaborate more on what are the fiery works? What, what, what are the darts? What, what, how does he come at us? Other than, I know I believe a lie, that would be, if I'm, if I'm truly believing a lie and I act on it, okay, yeah, he's happy about that. He is in the enemy. Mm -hmm. But what else? How yeah. else can he come against us? What are the fiery darts? Yeah. yeah. So, ultimately, if you really boil it down, in your, in your life now, the three things that the, that the devil wants to cause in your life is fear, doubt, and sin. So if he can make you afraid, he can make you doubtful, which ultimately undermines your faith in Christ, which would be a problem. Or if he can get you into sin, that's his goal, ultimately. And especially as a believer, since the longer time that you exist in a physical life is a longer time you have an opportunity to be an influence, he would also want to kill you physically. Ultimately, getting you into sin is about killing you because the wages of sin is death. The more into sin you are, the more time you take off your lifespan. Ultimately, this is your physical life. So he wants to get you into fear and doubt. He wants to get you into sin because he wants to kill you. Ultimately. And it all starts with what you believe and what you practice. And what you practice begins with your thinking, which ultimately is about what you believe. So the first First thing, or really the only thing that he can do to begin with, is try to keep you from repentance and then try to keep you from understanding truth. So that means the two things that are most important, especially as a new believer, but this is essential for all of us, is to make sure you prioritize repentance and make sure you prioritize renewing your mind. Those are the two most important things in a believer's life. Because if you're staying in repentance and you're staying in the word, you're going to always be equipped with the truth that you need to face temptation and overcome it, which empowers repentance. And staying in repentance keeps you in a position of righteousness, which Ephesians says is your breastplate. And in terms of the demonic nature of these things, I'm sure all of you have experienced this, where you will get thoughts that come out of nowhere and you're like, that was not me. It doesn't seem like you would think that. They're just out of the blue. Not every thought that you have is actually yours. Just like the Holy Spirit can speak to you through your conscience, so can the enemy. You can have thoughts that come from God. You can have thoughts that do not come from God. And the only way you get good at knowing the difference between the two is knowing the word. Because then you know what's edifying and you know what's destructive. But don't exaggerate this to the point that you think that you have to like cast a demon out of every molecule in the air. Okay. That's, it's not that complicated. It just simply means if you're a believer, you're born again and you're filled with the Holy spirit, the devil's not going to be able to put any demons inside of you if you're born again. Okay. You have the Holy spirit and the Holy spirit will not share a house with the devil. Okay. But he can try to plant thoughts in your mind and those can take root more easily when you don't know the truth. And this is exactly what the devil did to Eve. This is how temptations started to begin with. Eve was in the garden. She didn't know exactly what God said. The devil took advantage of that and said, hey, did God say you shall not eat of the tree? And Eve said, he said that we can't eat nor can we touch it. But God never said they couldn't touch it. So she didn't actually know for certain what God had said. And that gave the devil the opportunity. So it really comes down to knowing the truth. You're going to have a very, very hard time being equipped to defend yourself against the wiles and fiery darts of the enemy if you are not renewing your mind. It really comes down to that. Does that answer the question? Sort of. Is there more to it you're looking for? Okay. We can talk about it more later, too. All right. Okay, any more questions? Comments about this first part? Okay. All right. So this is the, sec the second part of what we're getting into today. Try to go through this as succinctly as possible. Is there ever a time when we need to dig into the past? Now, 
digging into the past might be a, the wrong way of stating things. So I'll put it this way. Is there ever a time when we need to consider or recall something, something in the past? That would be the question. Now, I would say yes. There are, there are times, but why and for what reason? That's what we have to consider. Now, just to start, can anyone give me an example of something that you might think of that we, a, a situation or circumstance in which it would be relevant to recall the past? Oh, yeah. Here. Practicing. It's on. Practicing sin. But, like, continue. Like, like let's say, uh, lustful thoughts, for example. Where, why are you doing that? Where did that come from? Or maybe, like, going back into the past and, I don't know, figuring that out? Well, that brings up another question, which is, if you have a sinful habit, and let's say it started at some point in the past, do you have to go back to when it actually started to get an answer today? No? Why? Something super simple that I was thinking is just, you have to look into the past um, to honor a word if you say you're going to do something, and then, uh, so it's not forgotten, if someone says they're going to do it. Sure. To hold them accountable. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really practical example. Yeah. Uh, talking about your testimonies. There you go. Yep, talking about your testimony. Paul did that. Yep. You know, I like to look back and see who I used to be and who I am today. And it's an encouragement yes. for where you are today. Yep. Yes. If you look at progress. Yes. Yep. That's similar to the testimony part. Do you have something? Yeah, in a sense of like going into your past. Um, to fix the way that you think now or like feeling that you have to like deal with your past in a sense I, I don't think you have to because you're a new creation in Christ Christ did that for you clench your conscience and said mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in Hebrews 9 mm -hmm. yep yeah yeah reflect on something what but let's let's dig into that more so reflecting on something what might that be for What God has done, reflecting the past, about what God has done is connected to testimony. When yeah. I first met him, how he came to me. Sure, sure, yeah. Did you have something over here, Hunter? Similar to that, like kind of what Earl was saying, like about reflecting. Like for an example, if I were to speak to another believer on how to uh, exit current sin, and I've been through that specific sin, I would give an example of what I did mm -hmm. and how I went about removing it, but that also coincides with testimony as well. Sure. Yep, but that, that would be a good thing to do. That'd be practical, yeah. Yeah, reflecting on your knowledge of God, how you've come to know him more. Yeah. These are all true, but we're dealing with specifically, okay, let me give an example. Let's say I come to you and I say, you know, I've got this current sin in my life, and I just found out, from somebody, really doesn't matter who, a few weeks ago, that this like sin has been like generation to generation. I'm dealing with the same thing that like three great grandfathers ago dealt with, and it started with him. That whole exercise. Is there any good in that? Oh, why? Because this is going around a lot. Yes, I'm a believer in this scenario. Yeah. Yes, but why? Scripture. I need something to renew my mind. Second Corinthians five seventeen, which is your new creation in Christ. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Your new creation in Christ Jesus. Romans six. Yep. Free from sin, dead to sin. Yep. So. Yeah, so I would say that's kind of the, ultimately the essential truth, which is that you're a new creation. We talked about this last week, which is that if you're, if you're a new creation, that means you're not an old one recycled or reused. If you're new, then the old one is completely out of the picture. It's not actually who you are anymore. So how could you look back into something that, as far as you're concerned, doesn't exist anymore? It's actually not there in God's sight. 
Yeah. David, I felt like I had to look back on my sin to understand where the sin came from and then to make a change going forward for a generational curse. Sure. Where sin came from, meaning? My alcoholism. Alcoholism? Okay. Yeah, alcoholism just went down my family line. Sure. And once I became an alcoholic, I thought, no, 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 no. This has got to change. I'm going to stop this here and now. Sure. Okay, I'll address that in a moment. Did you have a comment, Cherish? I don't understand how it all works. I just know I've had plenty of deliverance ministry, and as a born-again Christian, I, and the comment you made a little while ago is that God's not going to share his house with a demon, I think is what you said. Uh, it's not exactly how you said it, but. Um, and I, so I feel like I have, and, and I've even done some like self-deliverance, you know, with prayers or whatever. And I feel like I've been delivered of demons along the way, um, where I have like felt them leave, you know? So I don't know what that is or whatever, but you know, it's kind of like as kind of a new believer, you know, like, I, you know, I haven't even read the whole Bible all the way through where I can't explain certain things or I can't find the scripture necessarily without going to look for it or whatever or using Google. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, you know, like, I know I'm saved or I know that Jesus is real or, like, I can explain life events to someone, um, but I, you know, still struggle at times explaining the entire gospel to somebody you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. uh so there you go sure <laughs> okay yeah good things to address so thank you for sharing that um i'm going to try to see what we can cover today we'll probably get into it a little bit more next week too here's what i'll start with when it comes to a certain sinful habit that we might be struggling with today let's say it's a it's a present issue you can go back to the past and find out where it started generations ago, let's say. Let's say it's alcoholism, right? goes down the line. That may be true. It cannot be denied that, yes, there are certain habits that get passed down gener generation to generation, simply because if your dad raised you as an alcoholic, what are you going to be exposed to most? Alcohol. So in that sense, yes, things do get uh, passed down the line. However... If you look at a current struggle, let's say, or temptation for alcoholism, and you look at your past and find out it started with grandpa, if you have to do that in order to know that it's wrong, then that would be a problem because the Bible says it's wrong, right? So if we're trying to say that, oh, I have to do that to know that it's, that's how the sin started, to me, is an exercise in futility. Biblically, it's an exercise in futility because if you look at Scripture, you're going to be given an absolutely pure standard of right and wrong to know exactly what is right and what is wrong. You don't need to have a ton of information from other people to know, to know the difference between right and wrong. Now, if you look at, let's say, Jesus with the woman at the well. This is an example where Jesus, by a word of knowledge actually recalls for this woman something in her past, which was that she had had five husbands and the man that she was currently with was not her husband. That would be an example where Jesus, God brings up something to a person that was in her past. Now, if you look at the reason why he did that, number one, it was to re reveal that his knowledge was an example of that. He was a prophet, that he was the Messiah. It was something that got her attention. That's one of the main points about it. Number two, you see other examples of this where, but if we're using this one, where Jesus recalls something from the past to expose to this woman that she has a pattern, a habit in her life that has not been confronted. She hasn't repented of it. This is a moment of confrontation. So if you go to a person and you share something that they've been doing, and let's say because of deception, they're just blinded to it for whatever reason, you say, hey, this has been happening in your life all these people around you know that it's a problem. It needs to be dealt with. That confrontation is dealing with something of the past, yes, 
that's affecting them in the present. That can be valuable as a point of correction to wake a person up and bring them to repentance, which is exactly what Jesus was doing for this woman. The only thing with Jesus that's different is that he was miraculously recalling something that he couldn't know naturally, and that got the woman's attention as well. So if you're going to confront someone or you're going to be confronted yourself on something that you've continued in for a while and it engages you so that you repent of it, then it would be valuable in terms of recalling something in the past. But if we're saying you have to dig into the past to find out that something's wrong, that's completely futile. Now, some people will say that, well, I want to know where it started, but why? Like an analogy I would use, if you just really break this down, would be if you're in the hospital because you went on a bike ride and a car crashed into you and you blacked out, you're unconscious, and both your legs are broken and you're lying in the hospital bed and you wake up and you're in pain because you're broken legs and they're, they haven't started any surgery yet and the doctor's like, okay, the first thing we're going to do is explain to you every single detail of where you were riding, how the crash happened, where the exact brakes are, and you're sitting there writhing in excruciating pain, you don't care. You just want your legs fixed. <laughs> you want the pain to go away, right? So the point is, it really doesn't matter how it happened. What matters is that you get healed. And as far as Jesus is concerned, when he healed people, when he told people to repent, he never told them to go, to go back and dig into their sin, to dig into their past. He just gave them the solution. And we know he always gave them his word. He gave them faith. And for us, that's what we have scripture for. Because as far as we are concerned, being new creations in Christ, the, the only past event that really matters is the crucifixion and resurrection. That happened 2,000 years ago and is relevant to us today. And that is our answer. That's our solution to every problem. I'll pause there. Yeah. So with your analogy, I was thinking about, like, so a doctor would need to know. But you wouldn't need to know. Like they need to know what happened to you so they could look for the right places of what's broken, whatever, some things that might be hidden, whatever. So using your analogy then, that would be like, it's not my job, it's his. Sure. I don't need to go into the past. He knows what's in the past. He'll bring it to mind whatever needs to be dealt with if it matters, like Jesus brought to her mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah. Yeah, if, if God knows you need to know a certain piece of information, I'm sure he'd bring it to you. Right. Right, exactly. God doesn't dwell on it. He doesn't remember it anymore. This is after you're saved. Right? After you're born again, he doesn't remember it anymore. If we're using the woman at the well analogy, she wasn't born again. She's just being introduced to Christ, and God brings something up with her to confront her about something she needed to repent of. But after you've come to repentance, after you've come to Christ, it's gone. It's in the past. God's not going to bring it up anymore. Um, did you have a comment? No? Didn't. Okay. Um, all right. So, now let's take, for example, here, I'll get into this a little bit. Um, well, first, we should probably cover the examples about why you would need to look into the past. So, biblically speaking, one thing that was not brought up is that sometimes you have to recall or bring up the past in order to go forgive or reconcile with somebody that you were separated from a long time ago. Because the Bible says before you go to God offering a gift or before your prayers can even be heard, you have to forgive people. So, if you're holding something against somebody and you're avoiding a relationship where there's totally an opportunity for reconciliation, you're doing nothing about it. You would need to go to that person and forgive them. And I can guarantee you in that kind of conversation, the past is going to come up in a conversation. As part of that apology, as part of forgiveness, that would be one reason why you might need to forgive. Um, thank you for putting that scripture up, Mark eleven twenty five. It's a really good one. You got to forgive if you're going to be forgiven. Uh, next, and this was brought up, would be testimony. And there's a lot of different ways in which this can be talked about. But Paul did this a couple times, once in 1 Timothy and once in Philippians. He talked about his past as a way of testifying what Christ had done for him, comparing the past to the present. That's another valuable thing. The third thing that we addressed was that sometimes people need to be confronted 
with something that they've continued in for a while, including the past, as a way of, in, of moving them to repentance. That can be another reason. And Jesus did that in John chapter 4. Besides that, we don't really have scripture that says the past is relevant, except for what Brian mentioned, which is that God remembers it no more, so we shouldn't either. Now, what this gets into next is whether there is a relevance in terms of present sin to generational curses. Whether that's relevant, whether that has any part to play in this. Now, I'm going to keep this simple. I'm going to give you, there's quite a, quite a lot of scripture about this exactly. One chapter I would have you guys write down just for your own reading would be Ezekiel 28, or not, excuse me, not 28, 18. Ezekiel chapter 18, write that down. The whole chapter of Ezekiel 18 talks about this, and we're not going to read through the whole thing because it's a lot of verses, but read that. One we are going to read is just one verse, and that's Exodus chapter 20, and verse 5 is where this is first mentioned. Exodus chapter 20. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Then he repeats himself in slightly different words in Chapter 34 of Exodus, verses 6 through 7. And he says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So, number one, this is written under the law of Moses. It does have relevance today in one way, and we're going to look at a New Testament scripture where Jesus actually talked about this. But number one, here's what God is saying, just to clear this up. You've, he talks about two categories, people that hate me and people that love me. People who hate God, people who love God. He says the people who hate him and are thus guilty, still in sin, because while you hate, you're not going to be able to be forgiven while you're while you hate God. Because you can't come to faith in Jesus if you're hating God, right? The people that hate God, he says, those people, he visits the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. And we're actually going to look at a New Testament example where Jesus says this still has relevance today. Second, he says the people who love me. He says that he is to them merciful and gracious. And he keeps mercy for thousands, which means he like store, he has this mercy stored up that he pours out upon the people that love him because those who come to faith in Jesus are those who love God and thus they're forgiven. They receive mercy. So here's the point. Even just in this scripture, if you're just looking at the Old Testament, the curse of sin being visited upon people to the third and fourth generation was only for the category of those who hated God. It was not for those that loved God. Those that loved God, they received mercy. So even if you just use that scripture, that generational curse has no relevance to people who are under God's mercy, which would be us. Second point is that generational curses, according to the Bible, don't come from the devil. They come from God. And a lot of people will say, well, the devil is like bringing this curse on me that started with my grandpa. The devil is just doing what he's always done, which is to try to get you into sin. But if you're going to call this a generational curse and you're going to use that phrasing and you're going to draw it from Exodus, what you're saying is that it comes from God. Because God was the one who said, I'm the one who's going to visit the iniquity on the children of the third and fourth generation. And he did this in the Old Testament. One example is with the Amalekites who ambushed Israel when they came out of Egypt. And God said, I'm going to punish Amalek and remove the remembrance of them from the face of the earth. He didn't actually do that until two, two generations later under King Saul. And he had the grandchildren 
of the generation that ambushed Israel punished for what the fathers did. Why? Because they continued in their father's sins, were of the group of people that hated God, and therefore could not receive his mercy. So, if you're going to call something a generational curse, what you're saying is that it comes from God. And as a believer, I can promise you, if you believe you're no longer under God's judgment, you don't want to be saying you're under a generational curse. Yeah. Little gray, little gray button. There you go. It's on. Yep. Um, I mean, generational curses all started with Adam, right? I mean, he was cast out, and it said the, the ground that you walk upon will be cursed for your sake. Mm-hmm. And that's where the generational curses happened. But he also said to the serpent, um, gen, you know, the your offspring, uh, what does it actually say? The... Uh, I will put enmity, ooh, say that three times fast, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so, I mean, right there, it's all laid out that Adam was cast out, curse was put on him and all mankind. That is like the ultimate generational curse until her seed would bruise his head. Mm -hmm. In some translations, like, In Amplified, it says fatally, Mm -hmm. and that's Christ, her seed, Mm -hmm. Um, and that breaks the curse. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's it's laid out from the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. Yep, it is. In fact, I'm really glad you you brought that up. That's where we're going next. The only biblical text that tells us there is a curse passed down from generation to generation was what started with Adam, and that's just the curse of sin in general. In other words... The Bible says every person that's born into this world is born in sin, all have sinned, and therefore all die because Adam sinned. So, in that sense, all of us, before we come to know Christ, yes, are under the curse of sin. That's why we're born with a sinful nature. But as soon as you come to Christ, that's broken. So, yeah. Exactly, yeah. That's the only explicit place where we're told that there's this curse passed down from generation to generation, even to us, but that's until we get saved. Once you're saved, the, the one part of that curse that's still relevant to believers is the fact that your body is going to physically die. That came from Adam, and that continues to affect us to this day because we will die. The Bible says that God subjected this creation to futility. You are supposed to die because the point is that this body is sown in corruption and is raised in incorruption. You're going to get a new body, and that still affects us today, but that is it. That's all the Bible says about what's effect, what affects us today. When people, going back to Exodus, when people talk about generational curses and they're trying to use Exodus they're arguing against themselves if they're trying to say the devil's the problem. Because if you're believing in this general generational curse, you're saying God's the problem. So number one, that's, that's something that has to be corrected. Number two, Ezekiel 18 gets into it. I'm not going to get into it in detail, like I said, but I encourage you guys to read that chapter. Ezekiel 18 essentially says, and it's, it's I'm just going to read one verse out of it because it is so cool um, that God is even saying this in the Old Testament. Um, Ezekiel chapter 18. Verse 21. Ezekiel 18:21 says, "But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die." None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all uh, that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? None of his sins will be remembered. For his righteousness he will live. In other words, when you repent and turn to Christ, you will live and nothing of your past will be held against you. Nothing. So even in the Old Testament, God is saying that this is the truth, which is something that we still observe today. Now, New Testament example of a generational curse that's still relevant. 
Let's go to Luke chapter 11. This is the last scripture we're going to get into here before we finish up. Luke chapter 11. A lot of people don't realize or don't see what is written in here about this. Luke chapter 11 verses starting in verse 46. This is about unbelievers. This isn't about believers, but it's just important to note. Luke 11, verse 46. Jesus said, Woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. So he's talking about previous generations that killed the prophets. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute. This is the key verse. That the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Jesus' words. He, he not only is talking about a few generations, he's saying from Abel to Zechariah. That's a lot of time. And he's saying all of that murder, this generation will be held accountable for. Why? Because in their actions, they approved of the deeds of their fathers. Ezekiel 18 talks about this as well in saying that if a wicked man considers his father's sin and turns away, None of his sins will be remembered. But if he does not consider his father's sin and continues in it, then why is he also partly responsible for what his father did? Because he looked at the sin and its consequences and still chose to approve of it and then continue in it. And this is what Jesus is trying to say in Luke 11. This generation is held accountable for previous generations of sin because they, they did not consider what their fathers did, continued in it anyway, and then approved of their actions. That makes a person actually deserving of worse punishment because you have an example of the destructive repercussions of sin in the past. Didn't consider that and change. Instead, you approved of it and continued in it. So that is a modern application in Jesus' words where a generational curse is relevant. Exodus is trying to say, that when you have a generation of people that hate God, they teach their children to hate God, their children approve of what their fathers did and continue in it, the accountability of that sin continues to pass down the line. And that still happens today. But that's for unbelievers. If you're a believer, you are that person in Ezekiel 18 that did consider previous sin you chose to repent and turn away from it, and the righteousness you step into causes all previous sin to be completely forgotten. So there is absolutely no way as a believer that any previous sin of previous generations will be held against you or that you would be held accountable for if you repent. No way. It's not under the grace of God. It's not in Scripture. The only thing that you inherit is death from Adam and the curse of sin. The curse of sin is broken when you get saved, and the curse of death is broken when Christ returns. Anything outside of that is not you, if you're a believer, and not for you. So, to go back to what we started with, if then you have a current habit you're struggling with, let's say it did, let's say it was a habit that your father, grandfather, great-grandfather struggled with. Do you have to go back into that ancestry to break that habit today? No, of course not. No, that's not necessary. If somebody brings that up as a way of confronting you so that you'll repent, sure, but you don't have to go dig into it because as soon as you get born again and repent, that curse of inheriting sin is broken. And now you're a new creation. And if you're a new creation, all things, all old things, 2 Corinthians 5 says, have passed away. And all things have become new. 
So what you need to meditate on instead of your past to break those habits is the word of God, because that tells you about the new creation. And when you meditate on the new creation, it's seen in comparison to what you're struggling with now. And it gives you a truth to meditate on. And when you meditate on it, it causes you to walk in it. If you focus your mind on past sin, what are you going to continue in? Sin. If you focus on present, new identity, new creation in Christ, what are you going to walk in? That. New creation. You're going to walk as a new creation if you meditate on the new creation. If you meditate on the past and past sins, you're going to walk in those past sins. You have to meditate on what is true now for you as a believer. Yeah. So, like, when I get, I talk the Bible. So when I talk to people, people, I have to go back to my old sins to get them to come with. What do you mean? Expound. Expound. Well, like. Like your testimony? Yes. That's going back into my. Sure. We've gone over that. Yes, that's okay. Obviously, don't glorify your past. No. But you can recall the past and the testimony of how Christ saved you. Yes, Paul did the same thing. Okay. Yeah, so that's okay. But what matters is like if, like put it this way. If you are called upon to share your testimony with somebody, and let's say you have five minutes, and you spend four of those five minutes talking about your past and how much into sin you were. I don't think that's a very good idea. Oh, thank you, EJ. Appreciate that. I don't think that's a very good idea. No. You should be spending more, most of your time talking about Christ and what he's done. You can look at Paul's letters for an example. He uses like six verses to talk about what he was, and the rest of it is about the new creation, new life in Christ. So you don't need a lot of time. You can say, hey, I was this, this, and this. Christ saved me. Then talk about Christ. That's the point. Don't talk about your past so much. Otherwise, people just transfix on that, and it's not, not a good thing. But overall, yeah, that's a fine thing to do. Okay. I will just summarize with some final statements, and then we'll just see if there's any final questions. The only thing you actually in- inherit spiritually from previous generations, according to explicit scripture, is death and a sinful nature. Romans 5 talks about this. Sinful nature, the curse of sin, is broken when you come to Christ, because 2 Corinthians 5 says you inherit righteousness from Christ. Death is broken when Christ returns. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that. But if you you choose to continue in your father's sins as an unbeliever, you make yourself deserving of greater judgment than your father because you have to approve of your father's sins to continue in it. So that's the only part of that generational curse in Exodus that's relevant today. As a believer, that has no relevance to you. Also, as a believer, you inherit Christ's righteousness. You are not in Adam any longer, except in terms of physically dying, which we all will one day. The Bible says we are in Christ of his righteousness, and that is what we inherit from him, from Christ, his righteousness. Amen? Any final questions or areas maybe that you guys might want more clarity in? So I'll make sure this is all clear to everyone. Does everyone feel like, well, you'll obviously have to do some of your own studying as well, but do you guys feel at least as a starting point with this teaching that you're able to explain this? to somebody who's talking about past junk. Okay. I would highly encourage you, as I mentioned, read Ezekiel 18. Talks about this in in more detail. It's a really, really good chapter. If you can, just to kind of give like basic scripture for it, if you can have in your heart and if you can know it well, Romans 5 And Romans 6, which talks about what you got from Adam, what Christ gave you, and what it looks like now that you're in Christ. Even just those two chapters, 
are foundational for this. Really, really important for you to know. Second to that, if you're going to get into generational curses with person, with a person, you knowing that passage we read in Luke 11 and then um, Exodus is relevant if you're dealing with an unbeliever, which is actually a very important thing to motivate an unbeliever to turn to repentance. Why? Yes, yes. Before, huh? It is a free pass, yep. But if you're talking to an unbeliever who's not saved yet, and you want to motivate them to repentance. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yep, you want them saved, but like, okay. The Bible says the law confines all under sin. You're supposed to use the law to lead somebody to repentance. Okay? Yes. The fear of God is a great tool. Yes. <laughs> I was waiting for that. Fear of God is a great tool. So if you go to an unbeliever, you're talking about the law, right? The Bible says the law confines all under sin as a tutor to bring a person to Christ, right? So if you go to an unbeliever and say, hey, the law says you are in part because of what the law says accountable and held accountable and it's required of you to answer for the sins of previous generations if you continue in your father's sins and you can end up punished for it, do you think that'll get some fear of God in person? Yeah. In other words, it's not just your sins that matter. If you approve of what your fathers did and continue in it, that's even worse. Right? So you can use this. This is part of the law, what we're talking about. You can use the law to instill the fear of God in a person to move them to repentance. And that was the point of what God said in Exodus. He was trying to show the people if you continue as a generation that hates me and you teach your children to hate me, then you're going to cause your children to suffer also for what you did, not just what they did, because they end up approving of what you did. 